You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Good morning, Vine family. How are you? We're going to, a third time. That's how many times Peter denied Jesus, just so you know. Vine family, how are you this morning? Good. Good, good. Well, it's good to be with you. My name is Ben, and I'm one of the pastors of Eastside Church. Um, That got a big woot in the first service. Apparently there's less Eastside people here in the second service. Um, But we have been incubating slash squatting at the Vine for the last eight months or so. And um, we are leaving eventually, Vine family, I promise. Um, We'll stop, you know, clogging up the dish machine and the washer and dryer and all that stuff. So, well, it's uh, it's good to be here uh, together this morning, um, kind of basking in the glow of Easter weekend. Still, I hope that this past week was just a sweet week of remembering just afresh what we celebrated. And we referenced it this morning. I'll reference it again because it's good hope for us that Jesus is alive. And we've been examining the words of Jesus as we've been kind of taking a slowdown in our series through Matthew, um, which began uh, several months ago. And just for the last three months, we've been in chapter 5. We slowed down to take a closer look at arguably Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And our strong desire is to hear what Jesus is saying, to really consider the seriousness with which he calls us to live for God. And so in the Beatitudes, we heard how Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven into this world and how it's got an upside way, upside down way of operating compared with our own. Uh, We've heard the clear call to be bright and salty, the good kind of salty, as we learn to live for Jesus in light of the kingdom of heaven and in front of a watching world. And now we've begun to unpack over the last few weeks more of what it looks like to live whole lives for Jesus. And so Jesus has entered into a section where he's taking the Old Testament law and then redefining it for us. And so while we listen to Jesus' words this morning, we need to keep in mind his words from earlier in chapter 5, verse 17, where he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus' mission is to fulfill the law. Another way to say that is Jesus' mission is to complete the law. And what Jesus means when he says, I've come to fulfill the law, complete the law, is that he's come to perfectly live out every word of every command that God has ever given to his people. And he did it. No one else has ever done that. And no one else ever will. This is such an important thing for us to remember as we listen to Jesus because it helps us when he speaks hard messages of truth to us, like we're going to encounter this morning. His ability to completely live out the law gives him the right to instruct us and should give us hope about his words that, though difficult at times, are intended to help us learn to live for God's glory, which is what we were all designed to do. Our ultimate hope comes from what we just celebrated last weekend, Jesus' victory over sin, death, the grave, through his death and resurrection, And it's the complete validation that he is who he says he is. Jesus is God. And so if the Old Testament law 
existed to reveal the mind, heart, and will of God so the people of God could live for him. And if Jesus is completely God in human form, then God is revealing his complete mind, heart, and will through Jesus to us this morning in a way that the written law could never do. Jesus completes God's presence with his people physically. And then through the sending of the Holy Spirit, completes his presence with his people spiritually. So we can learn to live for him. Our passage this morning is a further breaking in of the kingdom of heaven. God has come to dwell with us. He's come to rescue us and heal us by being with us. He's come to help us see the brokenness of our own hearts, the brokenness of the world around us, and calls us to a wholeness that can only come as we learn how to live for him. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. You can open up your phone and go to your mobile device, app, Bible app, and listen as I read verses 27 through 30. And then let's open the eyes and ears of our hearts to Jesus and hear him teach us again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us your written word so we could read about your heart, your mind, your will. And God, thank you for sending us the living word, Jesus, to further reveal your heart, your mind, your will in a way that we could really respond to. So Holy Spirit, would you show us Christ? Show us Jesus now through your word that we might better know God and be changed And so good to be together this morning, God. Thank you for the consistent call to gather, to worship, to sit under your word. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I was prepping for this morning, I like to think, like, if you're a guest with us this morning, we're so glad you're here. And um, we take the Bible so seriously. And so we don't skip passages like this, but it is, if it's your first Sunday, it's kind of like, oh, man. Here we go. A hard one out the gate. And so before we get too far, I just want to call all of us to focus on something. Lust is a difficult subject. Adultery is a hard subject. It has real world messy implications. But it's a subject that God takes very seriously, and that's why it's so important. And in a room this size, I know that there are people at almost every conceivable spot in the spectrum of sexual purity. And so I want you to know Jesus is speaking to all of us. Don't make the mistake that the Pharisees often made of leveling up where you think you are according to the other people in the room. And there's two ways that you can fall off of that road. And both of them lead to you missing out on the sin-defeating, life-giving effect of God's Word. Because either you posture yourself better than others in the room, Or you posture yourself worse and bury yourself under the shame of past or present sexual impurity. And so this morning, I want to call us to hear Jesus. 
that the sin-defeating, life-giving effect of God's word is available. Take and enjoy that this morning. Jesus knows you. He knows everything about you. And you're here this morning to listen to him. It's a hard message, but there is grace. I pray we'll see that together this morning. So our passage opens up with Jesus correcting the Pharisees' view that by abstaining from the physical act of adultery, they were somehow righteous. Right? That's what I just warned us against. Jesus is exposing the lust in their hearts as being on the same level as the physical act of adultery. Jesus is revealing that for God, righteousness is the result of someone's heart posture, their heart condition, not a byproduct of actions. Followers of God are to be holy as he is holy and pure of not just body but of heart and of mind. Jesus then makes the point that the action to be taken is in the opposite direction of lust. Instead of cozying up to the line of the law, we're to run as far away as we can get. Sin, after all, never leads to righteousness. It only ever leads to death and separation from God. And so out of deep love for God and deep compassion for us, Jesus is revealing God's mind and heart on sexual purity so that we would respond by living radically pure lives for him. And in order to see that and respond to that, we need to see and hear that Jesus is being very clear about two things this morning. Number one, what sexual purity really looks like. And number two, how we're supposed to pursue sexual purity. So number one, what sexual purity really looks like. Look again at verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sexuality is something that God hardwired into us at the moment of creation. We're sexual beings. Jesus is not looking to refute that. Or to say that sexual desire in men and women is an inherently bad thing. That's not his point. But Jesus is seeking to redefine what sexual purity looks like in order to show us what God requires of people who follow him and belong to him. In verse 27, he quotes directly from the Old Testament. In fact, he's quoting the seventh of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And given what Jesus had done with the sixth commandment just a few verses earlier, I imagine that he had his audience's attention right away. The crowd around him was filled with people for whom the law was regularly taught and explained. They knew how serious adultery was and how severely God had instructed them to treat those who were caught in it. The penalty was death. That is why Jesus' words in verse 28 pack such a punch. Because no doubt in the brief moments while Jesus was reciting the commandment, they began to recall to mind the last case of adultery they knew of. So-and-so, with so-and-so. Or even something current that hadn't been fully found out, but maybe is being suspected. And as they're busy weaponizing their self-righteous judgment in the form of, I'm not like them, I would never do that, Jesus blindsides them by pointing the finger right at their hearts. And he says in no uncertain terms that simply abstaining from adultery is not the highest form of sexual purity. Sexual purity begins and ends 
with the heart as far as God is concerned. All throughout Matthew 5, Jesus has been showing us how our world operates opposite of his kingdom. And this is no different. We crave what we can see. We want to know how we measure up, don't we? It's one of the most human things about us. We're all about boundaries and lines. Tell them how far I can go. I'll come right up to it. They make us feel safe. They make us feel like we understand our place in the world. I've been thinking about putting a fence in my backyard. And I have to go around and talk to my neighbors and ask them for an easement onto their property so that I can build right up to the line because I want to maximize the space in my backyard. That's what the people were doing. They were maximizing the space all the way up to the line. As long as we don't do the act, we're okay. We define our sense of reality and safety this way. It's the same thing the Pharisees were doing, only they're doing it with sexual purity, something that God takes very seriously. Their definition of sexual purity was not committing adultery. And Jesus is saying it's not far enough. There's no easement with God's command. Listen to what he says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. This is how God operates different from our world, the way that we think. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is concerned not only with actions, but with heart. His highest desire for us is that we would have a heart like his. He knows it's what's best for us. A heart that's pure, completely good, A heart that loves others for their sake and not for our own selfish gain. You guys, adultery at its core is a completely selfish act. It's taking of what is not right to take. It's a heart posture that says, I'm not bound by the confines of my marriage vows or yours. The physical act of adultery is the end product of a sinful heart. A Christian counselor once said, falling into bed with someone else's spouse is the last decision in a long line of poor decisions. Adultery is not where we start. It's where we end up. The fruit of a sinful, lustful heart. And so the problem is in us. And the end result is that we're incapable of pursuing sexual purity because we're full of sin. If we're supposed to stay on the other side of the line that Jesus draws, that no lust can exist in our hearts, then we have all failed. So what does sexual purity look like? It might be a better question to ask, of who does sexual purity look like? The answer is God. God's mind. God's heart. God's purity of action. He never makes mistakes. Ever. He always loves selflessly. In order to achieve true sexual purity, we have to have God's character. There isn't a man or woman who have been able to live this life and escape except for one. Jesus lived 33 years, not in some kind of vacuum safe room away from the world, but touching it and interacting with it and having a heart that's breaking for it and interacting with women on an emotional level and yet he was free from the sin of lust. 
he actually did live free from it. That's why he's qualified to give us this definition. That's why he's qualified to hold the line and say, this far, no further, and it's in a different place than you thought. But it also qualified him for something else, for sacrifice on our behalf. See, God is holy. And if there is sin, God demands sacrifice. And Jesus offered himself in these famous words of Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All of the grief and the shame and the pain and the brokenness that exists in this world because of sexual sin all fell on Jesus Christ. He paid the full price. And he did it willingly in order to reveal God's mind and heart on sexual purity so that we would respond by living radically pure lives for God. He enabled us to it. And this is the message that we need to hear. This frees us from the burden that I think I can feel setting into this room right now. It's heavy to bear. Chances are it's touched one of our lives multiple ways. One way, it doesn't matter. It's heavy and it's hard. And it's the, wor- it's the message that our world needs to hear. Because we're all running towards sin until God turns us back to himself. And all of that happened because Jesus laid down his life for us. You see, our world wants to have complete sexual freedom. The right to do whatever we want with our bodies. And the complete valuing of people including ourselves. But we can't be selfless and selfish at the same time. It doesn't work. It's not how we're wired. We're wired to live for a higher goal, a goal of living for the glory of God. So Jesus is saying that sexual purity looks like loving others from a pure mind, a pure heart, like how God loves us, like how Jesus loves us, that he would lay down his life It's not seeking out devious relationships with women. He's laying down his life for them. So when we love others that way, we give ourselves and our desires up in favor of helping others pursue the same sexual purity. And our desires, and when we do this, we live for God in a way that brings him glory and communicates worth and value to him and the community that we're a part of. In Christ, God has set us apart to live for him. Jesus moved the line. It's not just about outward actions. We need to stop by believing that. It's about an inward heart posture. One that reflects God's heart and mind and is willing to carry out his will. But there's action involved in it. It's not a passive obedience. And so as Jesus has called us to see what sexual purity actually looks like, we now need to see how we're supposed to pursue that sexual purity. The knowledge that sin lives in us should awaken and change how we want to approach the pursuit of sexual purity. We don't simply seek out behavior modification. 
It's the mistake that the Jewish people have been making. They started and stopped seeking to live for God with their actions. Seeking behavior that's in line with God's heart and mind has to start with seeking to have God's heart and mind. The definition of sexual purity that Jesus gave us helps us to become aware of the problem as heartbeat. And he makes it really clear that we've got to move in verses 29 and 30. We have to act. So let's look at those. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. The point that Jesus is making here is that we have to take action. And it's got to be radical action. As long as we are alive, we're going to be tempted towards lustful thoughts. And when they get a hold of us, it leads to physical sin. But Jesus is upping the ante here. He is saying that the right response to the sin of lust is radical action in the opposite direction. And that the alternative is death and separation from God. John Piper sums up Jesus' words in our necessary response this way. Jesus says, if you don't fight lust, you won't go to heaven. Not that saints always succeed. The issue is that we resolve to fight, not that we succeed flawlessly. A justifying faith is a lust-fighting faith. I do not mean by this that our faith produces a perfect flawlessness in this life. I mean that it produces a persevering fight. Do you see that? So we're not perfect, never going to want to do it anymore. But an evidence that our heart has been changed is that we get back up off the mat and we go back in there and say, I could do this all day. But our strength is limited. But this is where the power of the gospel comes in. That's why I warned us all at the beginning to pay attention. Because we don't fight to stay out of either side, burying ourselves in shame or raising ourselves up on our pride, which is sure to lead to a fall. We don't stay in the middle of that on our own. The gospel reminds us that we cannot do this by pointing us to Jesus. And when we see him, we see our sin, and we see his grace. God's grace, because he knows our weakness, and he sent Jesus to make it possible for us to have his mind and heart when it comes to sexual purity, to actually live out sexual purity. The danger of allowing lust to gain a hold on your heart is so real that the countermeasures have to be real. They have to be radical. You've got to move in the other direction. But it doesn't come naturally or easily to us. It's the reason for the strong language that Jesus uses in verses 29 and 30. He's trying to wake us up to the danger. He's painting a picture of a radical reaction. But Jesus is not suggesting self-mutilation. Just as a pastor, whenever you come across these things, it's like, they just don't go home and this is not what it says. <laughs> Some throughout the history of the church have thought that. But it doesn't solve the problem. And we don't have to go very far to realize that self-mutilation won't work. So picture it this way. 
by way of illustration. Consider John and his relationship with his coworker Mary. John's always been stirred by Mary's beauty, but recently his gaze has turned to lust. Taking Jesus' words, literally, John proceeds to cut out his right eye. Thinking that the problem is solved, he returns to work for, after a period of rehabilitation, only to find out that now his left eye has lusted as well. So he cuts it out too. He now comes to work with a seeing eye dog. He's not as efficient at his job, but he's convinced he's been obedient to Jesus and is beyond lusting after Mary. But when he hears her voice, illicit desire rages yet again in his heart, so he lops off both of his ears. He again returns to work, not a pretty sight to say the least, but confident that it will not happen again. He walks by her desk and smells her perfume, and lust rages once more. So he cuts off his nose. But not even that solves his problem. For as he gropes through the office in his self-inflicted blindness, his hands accidentally brush Mary's hand, and his flesh is stirred yet again. So he somehow cuts off both his hands. And it is only then that he realizes he still has a mind And Mary's memory lingers vividly. You see, the problem is not as simple as gouging out an eye or lopping off a hand or deadening our senses. That's Jesus' point. We can't cure ourselves on our own. Jeremiah 17.9 reveals the problem. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our own hearts are out to deceive us into sinful patterns, which means that our pursuit of sexual purity has to be ongoing and radical. But the question that's facing all of us this morning is are we willing to pursue it that way? Are we convinced? Do we hear Jesus well enough to be willing to give up our sin and seek to live for God to the point that we die to ourselves and the desires of lust that we are commanded to battle. And this, I think, is the hardest part. It would be easier to gouge out an eye, easier to cut off a hand. Jesus' teaching comes in because in order to obey, we must die to ourselves and our own sinful desires. And that is the hardest thing to do. We can no longer be satisfied with mere outward obedience, not when Jesus has been so clear that the condition of our heart and eternal soul are at stake. I was chatting with another pastor this last week, and he remarked how he he knew of someone that took extreme measures to guard themselves from sexual purity. And we were just, we were talking about it, and and I think because of this passage and a right understanding of it, you know, I think we can sometimes have a like, oh, is that the legalism? They're being legalistic. And my friend made this statement. If your goal is to please Jesus, it's never legalism. And, and friends, that's true. John Stott is a faithful single pastor And I want to read a quote from him as we start to wrap up this morning. 
To obey this command of Jesus will involve for many of us a certain maiming. We shall have to eliminate from our lives certain things which, though some may be innocent in themselves, either are or could easily become sources of temptation. In Jesus' own metaphorical language, we may find ourselves without eyes, hands, or feet. That is, we shall deliberately decline to read certain literature, see certain films, visit certain exhibitions. If we do this, we shall be regarded by some of our contemporaries as narrow-minded, uptight, untaught Philistines. What? They will say to us incredulously. You've not read such and such a book? You've not seen such and such a film? Why, you're not educated, man. They may be right. We may have had to become culturally maimed in order to preserve our purity of mind. The only question is whether for the sake of this gain we are willing to bear the loss and endure the ridicule. And so the question that we need to carry with us this morning is are we willing to endure everything from personal hardship that comes from giving up things that we just really like all the way to cultural ridicule for the sake of following Jesus. For the sake of being able to bear witness to the gospel with a clear conscience. For the sake of begging the question, what's the hope that you have in you? Have you seen this world falling apart? Because our lives look so much different from those around us. How we answer this question has eternal implications. I recently... Um, came across as I was preparing this message was convicted Um, I enjoy reality television that's not what I was convicted about I think some reality shows are okay Um, but I I had recently watched a particular reality show on Netflix And, and the reason I like reality television is because I think it is a perfect encapsulation of our culture and our brokenness and what's what's amazing is that it's actually it's really highly produced it's all fake just in case you thought it was real to certain to some degrees but it's all produced and so they're putting on display the core of human nature and so i put a window out there and so i enjoy looking in the window and just seeing and commenting and thinking like i'm so grateful jesus that you died and probably fighting some pride too and there's probably a myriad of reasons why it's not a good show to watch, good shows to watch but on this subject i had watched this reality show and as i was watching the show one of the characters mentioned their instagram account and so it's kind of like oh wow these people live in real life that's right and so i went and i followed her instagram account and i followed several other instagram accounts from the people on the show And seeing them on the show and seeing them in their private lives had two totally different effects on me. And seeing them in their private lives hooked my heart in a way that seeing them in the show had not. It hooked me and tempted me to lust. Now, I I confessed it to Nikki, and I unfollowed all of those accounts. And my reaction in the moment was to just put my phone away and then come back and know I still had to face the problem. But here's, here's something that was really, really interesting. As I took that step 
of fighting against the temptation to lust after these women and, and maybe others, depending on what would pop up in my Instagram feed, which just repopulates when you open your phone. There's no predictable way to see. You can't choose who you're looking at. Is that as I distanced myself, I started to see other accounts that I had blindly followed over time that just needed to go. Because when the line is drawn in our hearts, and when the ramifications could be separation from God, you start to see things really clearly. You start to want to live in a really good way in light of judgment day. And make sure that your eyes are fixed on Jesus alone. That's the effect that this had in me in this instance. And I want to keep fighting. I want to fight for my marriage. I want to fight for my son. And for my girls. That they might grow up with a dad who is living for God. And not for anything else. And I think, just because of the nature of this this morning... I want to give you an opportunity to take inventory as I was lovingly forced to do by Jesus as I was preparing this. So I just want you to take a minute now and just in the quietness of your heart, just take inventory. Ask God to show you. If you don't know, ask him to show you. He will. Jesus loves you. He loves you enough to show you the the sickness of your heart and he loves you enough to show you his sufficiency. And then I'll wrap us up. Uh, in just a minute by praying. But would you just take, take stock of your own heart right now and ask God to speak to you. God, I confess that I feel the vulnerability of my humanity today. I feel how fragile I am in light of your holiness and your word and how you have called us to live and respond to you. I feel it for myself and I feel it on behalf of these people. So God, I pray that you would Put faith in our hearts that as we approach the Lord's table this morning, that we would do so with a confidence that you have defeated sin and death and we are free to fight. That we are free to fight against it, knowing that the war has been won. God, for the work that you're doing in all of our hearts, I thank you. It's evidence of your kindness, your love for us. And I just pray that you would never leave us and never forsake us like you have promised never to do. You are God of your word. We love you for that.
Thank you for calling us together. We pray you'd be with us now for the remainder of our time and even as we scatter. In Jesus' name, we pray.